And as you're finding your seat, if you have your Bibles with you today, and I hope you do, I invite you to turn with me to the book of Nehemiah. We're going to be in chapter 1 this morning, kicking it off. And, and as we get started, it is very exciting for some of us that NFL is full force today. I'm not exactly sure who's playing. I haven't checked the schedule. But I'm sure there are, is a good slate of games scheduled for the day. Um, I obviously do know who's playing. And I am going to hold my comments till next Sunday. <laughs> and then I might have a word or two. We'll see. I will say, um, depending on the outcome of the game today, either I will be wearing a brown shirt next week, or more likely, Josh Irvin will be decked head to toe in Chiefs gear. But, all right, let's get to serious stuff. Let's get in, in God's Word. We kicked off uh, this series on the book of Nehemiah last week, and, and last week we tried to just lay the foundation uh, for where we're going to go in this series. And I took the time to show you the dispensational order of the canon of Scripture, how it places us prophetically right in line with, with the book of Nehemiah. Where we're at today, from a dispensational uh, viewpoint, puts us in that line. That, that time, right before the rapture of the church, as God is returning his focus back onto the nation of Israel as they are returning to the land. So Nehemiah is perfect for us today, and it shows us the key ingredients in building our lives, our homes, our families, this church in these very last days before the rapture. And I tried to challenge you a little bit with respect to being that Nehemiah, being the Nehemiah wherever it is that God has placed you, being that builder. Because what we see with Nehemiah, and we talked about this last week, is he was the right man in the right place at the right time. And I explained to you that, that providentially, you, you can't really argue that, that you are at the right place uh, in the right time. Because much of that, 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 this isn't a Calvinistic viewpoint, we all have free will and choices lead to consequences, both, both good and bad. But, but God has a big part in, in where you're at and the timing of that. Because God saw fit to have you born when you were born. We didn't have anything to do that with that. He saw fit to place you in the family you were in, and I would even say he saw fit to place you in this church. So the only re remaining question is, are you going to be the right man or the right woman? Because, because that's up to you. That's much of what we talked about last week. That God did his part, are you going to do yours? Will you do it in order to build for the future? However long or short that might be, and, and here's the great thing about that, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how much time we have left. Because when you're spiritually building for the future, you are strengthening your present and you're glorifying God today, which is exactly what we're supposed to be doing. That's why we're here. God's worked it all out that way. He's, he's pretty awesome. But when it comes to Nehemiah, one of the things, the, the, really the first thing that made him the right man was that he was able to see the burden that God had for his people. And that, that, that's the title of today's message, Seeing God's Burden. Because if you're ever going to make a difference for the Lord in this world, if you're ever going to effectively build for the future, 
You must be able to see God's burden, and you must see it as your own. Now, in order to get where we're going, I, I need you to remember the context of this series. We're talking about building our families and our homes and this church and the, the sphere of it being that right man, that right woman, and the sphere of influence that you have today. And we're focusing there, obviously, because that makes it personal. So let me just hear from the beginning, make the focus of today's message more personal for all of us right now. And let me ask you, what is God's burden for this church specifically? Now, obviously and certainly, that is a question that I need to be able to answer. But not only me. This is not a one-man show. We're all in this together. What is it that he wants us doing and how should we be going about doing it? Because you need to see it too. Not only me, you need to see it too. And you need to be a part of building it. All of us. That includes you guys over there. That includes you guys over there. All of us. He has you at the right place at the right time. Will you be the right man and the right woman? Will you be a part of witnessing to your friends and schoolmates? Will you be a part of learning the Bible and getting on the path of growth so that you will be prepared for ministry and for whatever God has in the future? And listen, asking what is God's burden for this church is different. That is a different question than me asking what is your burden for this church. So people always have, you know, great ideas that they want to let us know what, what we should be doing or what we shouldn't be doing. But, but honestly, let me just tell you out of love, I only care about your burden of, for this church if it matches God's burden for this church. So let me ask you this, what is your burden for your home, for your kids? Whatever it is, you need to see it, you need to see God's burden, what is God's burden for your home, for your kids, you need to see that and be a part of building it. And again... That is a different question. What is God's burden for your home, for your family, for your kids? That is a different question than what is your burden for your home and your kids. I mean, maybe your burden is that your child will be an all-star for the Cleveland Indians or a partner at the best law firm in Ohio. Well, is that God's burden for them? Maybe, but maybe not. I don't know. I'm not their parent. But what I do know is that you need to be building toward whatever it is that God has for them. Not necessarily what you have for them. Those need to come in line. And ultimately, this really leads to what is God's burden for you in the place that God has you. Are you, are you a friend to someone? Are you a dad to someone? Are you a mom to someone? Are you a grandparent to someone? Are you a member of this church? In all the roles that you find yourself in, what is it that God wants you doing in those roles? How does he want you building for the future? If you are a leader, how does he want you leading? If you are a follower, how does he want you following? Because you need to see it, and then you need to be about it. But you need to know how, and I, I understand that. You need to learn the steps to take in order to see God's burden in those various areas of your life. And that's exactly what Nehemiah is going to show us today. 
right from the very beginning of this book, we see God's burden very quickly become Nehemiah's burden. And we see the action he takes in response to it. And this provides a great template for us as we look to establish God-centered homes, God-centered families, a God-centered church, all for his glory. So let's go ahead and look at it. We're just going to get started this morning and look at the first four verses of Nehemiah chapter 1. There we read, the words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah, came to pass in the month of Chislu in the 20th year, as I was in Shushan the palace. The Hananiah, one of my brethren, came, he and certain men of Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews that had escaped, which were left of the captivity and, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said unto me, the remnant that are left of the captivity there in the province are in great affliction and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem also is broken down, and the gates thereof are burned with fire. And it came to pass when I heard these words that I sat down and wept and mourned certain days and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. So let's pray before the God of heaven right now and then we'll get into our study. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we're so thankful for your word. We're so thankful for what we can learn from it to build our lives today for your glory. And so, Lord, I pray that you do that this morning, that your, your Holy Spirit works in each and every one of us. We all have something. We're all here for a reason. Lord, we all have something that we need to learn. We're, we're never at the point of beyond learning, none of us. And so, Lord, there's something you have for us today. So I, I pray that your Holy Spirit does that work, uh, to take your word and, and to teach it to us and, and to use it in our lives and, and in our hearts uh, for your glory. So, Lord, I pray that everything is said is true to your word. And I pray that it is honoring and glorifying to you. And I ask all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Okay, so like I told you, we're going to learn three steps that are necessary in our lives so that we can really see God's burden in these different areas. You say, how do I, how, okay, yeah, I, I want God's burden for my home. How, how do I get there? How do I see it? Okay, we're, we're going to show you. We're going to show you where to start. And again, this is the key for building for the future. But before we get to all those steps, there's some introductory information that we need to understand in verse 1. Because right from the outset of this book, we're introduced to our main character, Nehemiah. And in that first sentence, he's introduced as the author of the book. So you won't find much argument out there, but if anybody tells you Nehemiah didn't author the book, tell them they're wrong because the Bible says he is. So he's introduced as the author of the book, and he's introduced as the son of Hakaliah. And God points that out. At least for one reason, to help us differentiate him from other Nehemiahs you see around this time. Including one, for example, in, in chapter 3, verse 16 of this same book. When they're, when they're going through and, and, and putting the people around the gates and where they're building. And we see in verse 16, after him repaired Nehemiah, the son of Asbuk. So that's obviously a different Nehemiah. And so, so we, know, we know who the, our author is. So we meet Nehemiah. And then we learn that this story is, is set in the month of Chislu, or if you happen to be familiar with a Hebrew calendar, you might know it as Chislev or Kislev. I don't really know how to pronounce all those words, but, but if you know that, you do. Um, but that roughly, roughly equates to our December. It's, it's really late November into December. Our calendar and, and the, the, that G Jewish Hebrew calendar, they don't line up perfectly day for day. But it's close enough to say, you know, mostly December. Additionally, the Hebrew calendar starts close to our April. So Chislu was the ninth month of the Hebrew calendar, is the ninth month of the Hebrew calendar. And if you know anything 
about biblical numerology, you know that the number nine is connected to fruit bearing. So the number nine, but the, you know, God uh, puts just truth in even things such as numbers in his word. And the number nine throughout scripture is connected to fruit bearing. Now foundational to that connection is the ninefold fruit of the spirit found in Galatians chapter 5 verses 22 and 23. And, and the book of Galatians just happens to be the ninth book in the New Testament. And it just happens to have nine letters in his title. And, and when you look at those verses, 22 and 23, and you add all those up numbers together, they just happen to equal nine. Kind of like your nine-letter King James that was originally produced in 1611. And when you add one plus six plus one plus one equals, yeah, you know where we're going. And I, and I point that out because it's pertinent to the specific time in Israel's history. It was time for them to return to the land and begin bearing fruit again. They'd been barren for a while. They had been in captivity. But in, in, in setting the stage for the eventual first coming of Jesus, God desired for them to bear fruit once more. Now, the, the truth is that that didn't ever happen. And Jesus came and was rejected by his own. And God tells us why he was ultimately rejected. We find that answer in Matthew chapter 15, verse 8. It says, This people draweth nigh unto me with their mouth, and honoreth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And so they talked a good game, but they didn't mean it. They hadn't allowed their hearts to draw close to God. And that relates to us, because as we went through in some detail last week, that, that time in Israel's history, again, is connected to today in God's prophetic timeline. And while the focus then was on the nation of Israel and, and will be again soon, today the, the focus is still on us as the church. And, and, and with respect to the church as a whole, the universally, the universal church, Laodicea has been a barren age. And, and, and we talk a good game but it seems like our hearts are far from him. So guess what? As we near the end, and God is preparing things for his second coming, it is time for us to be fruit bearers more than ever before. It's time for us to be serious about the mission and bear fruit for him. So as we enter this study of Nehemiah, you need to ask yourself if you're going to do that or not. That's what we've been talking about all along. It's where we're focused, being that right man or right woman for the job. And it's related to where your heart is found. And that should come as no surprise because Matthew 6.21 tells us, For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. So what is your treasure? What is it that you treasure? Do you treasure the things of this earth? Or do you treasure the things of heaven? Is your focus on the temporal or the eternal? And those questions bring us back to where we're going in this message because they are related to burden. And seeing God's burden instead of just your own. And, and again, if you're saying, I don't know how to do that. Well, well listen, I'm going to show you because Nehemiah shows us. He's going to teach us the steps this morning necessary to see, to seeing that burden. But like I talked about last week, if, if you hear it 
and if you learn it and yet refuse to apply it, well, then I can't help you. And the truth is, neither can Nehemiah or even God, because he gives you the free will to choose. The Word of God will work every time, effectually, according to 1 Thessalonians 2.13, but only to those who receive it as their own and believe it. You must put it to work in your life. And I trust that you want to do that. That's why you're here. So when it comes to seeing God's burden, beginning that shift in your life from a temporal focus to an eternal focus, here's the first step. And these are in order, by the way. You, you have to do these in this order. they got to be taken one at a time in, in the way we're going to lay them out. So first, you need to look up. This is very, very simple. Very simple, I know. And God makes things simple. Now, they're not necessarily easy, but they're simple. But if you truly want to see God's burden, if you want to see it and see it as your own, then you have to start by looking up to him for it. And that's what Nehemiah shows us. And we know that he was doing that by the question that he asked in verse 2. Look at it with me. Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 2. He says that Hannah and I, one of my brethren, came, he and certain men of Judah. And Nehemiah has a question for his brother and these other guys. And I asked them concerning the Jews that had escaped, which were left of the captivity, and concerning Jerusalem. So last week we talked about those, those, the, the first group under Zerubbabel, the second group under Ezra. There had been people that, that had gone back. And so, you know, they were coming out of captivity. And so he's asking, okay, there's people back in Jerusalem and the temple's been rebuilt. How, how's it going? How's it going there? And... Again, I, I laid some of this groundwork last week, but you have to remember the context. Nehemiah would have certainly been born during the captivity. We just know that from, from the years. And he now has a role as the king's cupbearer living in the king's palace. That means he likely would have never been to Jerusalem himself. Now, obviously, his brother Hanani had visited, but Nehemiah probably hadn't. He probably, like Daniel, we'll look at this in a second, had been chosen as a child to grow up in the king's palace. But even if he hadn't, the, the chances are he would have never been to Jerusalem. He would have come up in Persia, been focused on the king's needs, which certainly had nothing to do with Jerusalem. So what you need to catch here is that while Nehemiah's earthly focus was on the king of Persia, his heart was focused on the king of kings. And that's because he had taken the time to look up. And how did he do that? By looking in the scriptures. That's how you look up. You, if you want to see God's heart and you want to see God's burden, you look in his word. Because why else would Nehemiah inquire about a struggling remnant of people who lived hundreds of, hundreds of miles away in a place he had likely never been? I mean, he had a nice gig. We're going to get to that in the next point. But let me show you why. It was because he was aware of and cared about what God cared about. You see, some 150 years earlier, the prophet Jeremiah had written these words that we find in Jeremiah 15.5. Jeremiah said, For who shall have pity upon thee, O Jerusalem? Or who shall bemoan thee? Or who shall go aside to ask how thou doest? And that's exactly what Nehemiah was doing. He was asking about Jerusalem. He was asking about the Jews that were there. And as we'll see, when he gets the negative report, he bemoans them. 
So Nehemiah was the literal answer to the questions Jeremiah asked. Who shall have pity on thee? Nehemiah said, I will. Who shall bemoan thee? Nehemiah said, I will. Who shall go aside to ask how thou doest? Nehemiah said, I will. And he did. He did all of those things. Because he looked up and he cared about what God cared about. And he was able to do that by knowing and obeying the scriptures. I'm sure he also knew other verses, which would have been written years before, like Psalm 122, verses 6 through 9. It says, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. They shall prosper that love thee. Peace be within thy walls and prosperity within thy places. The walls were all torn down. For my brethren and companions' sakes, I will now say, peace be within thee. Because of the house of the Lord our God, I shall seek thy God. I'm sure he also was aware of the 137th Psalm, verses 5 and 6, that five and six that says, If I forget thee, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget her cunning. If I do not remember thee, let my tongue cleave to the roof of my mouth. If I prefer not Jerusalem above my chief joy. Listen, God cared and still cares for and about Jerusalem. He cares about the nation of Israel. Jerusalem was the center of everything Israel. It was where the temple was located. It represented the presence of God and the worship of God. But now watch this progression through time. Because then God came to earth in Jesus. And all that, the worship and presence of God was embodied in Jesus. But then he left. And he ascended back to heaven after his resurrection. But then he left three things in his place. He left the word of God, the spirit of God, and the church of God. And when it comes to the presence of God and the worship of God today in this church age, you cannot experience his presence or worship him outside of those three things. That's how God has set it up. It is the word, the walk, and the work. Let me explain that to you. And this gets to seeing God's burden. This is how you look up today. It takes you walking in the Spirit. Galatians 5.16 tells us, This I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Okay, so this gets to seeing what, what God sees, looking at the, temp the eternal and not the temporal. So how do you do it? How do you walk in the Spirit? Well, Colossians 3.16 tells us. But to fully understand Colossians 3.16... You need to start in Ephesians 5, verses 18 and 19. That sets the context. And those verses say, And be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. Okay, so to walk in the Spirit, he's equating with being filled in the Spirit. Now look at Colossians 3.16 because it gives more definition. It's a companion verse. It says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual song, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. So you should be able to see the connection and the cross-reference there. This is how God makes things so beautifully. The Bible defines itself. Because walking in the Spirit very simply is letting the word of Christ dwell in you richly. And as it saturates your mind, 
It cleanses you so that your desire for the temporal begins to decrease and your desire for the internal begins to increase. For the eternal. God's burden starts to become your burden. And listen, letting the word of Christ dwell in you richly is not just learning for head knowledge. That's not what it's about. You don't succeed, so to speak, on this front from being the smartest guy in the room. Remember, the Jews didn't have a knowledge problem. They had a heart problem. And so to dwell in you richly, it means to inhabit you abundantly. It's about knowing, it's, it's, it's about knowing him and not about knowing more. And your life then reflects that fact. Your public life that we all know and your personal and private life that only you know. And your flesh begins to not have power over you, like Galatians 5.16 tells us, walk in the Spirit so that you won't fulfill those lusts of the flesh. And, and, and that's, that's all it is. It's very simple. That's walking in the Spirit. It goes hand in hand with God's Word. So you have those first two things. God, Jesus replaced himself with the Word of God, the Spirit of God, and the Church of God. Okay, so we're going to walk in the Spirit. But we don't give him anything to lead us by if we don't take the time and spend the time in God's word. This is how we look up. We take the time and we spend it in God's word and that gives the Holy Spirit something to lead us. And so we walk in that as we, let, as we meditate on God's word and we let it dwell in us and inhabit us. And we, we spend time in it, we memorize it, we meditate it and it begins to change us. But listen, it doesn't stop there because then you have to live it out. You have to begin applying what God's teaching you. And you and I get to live it out in community as we work together in ministry through this church. You need that third piece. That is just how God set it up. So the, the, the church is the vehicle that he uses today. So let me try to illustrate it this way. I know we all have maps on our phones and, and, and GPS, but some of you who are, again, of a certain age, you'll remember like, you know, old school books that had maps in them. This is foreign. I know, like, you guys are like, what in the world is this guy talking about? Used to, if you wanted to drive across the country, you had to get a book that showed you the maps. But anyway, so let me try to illustrate this. The, the Word of God is the map. It's the road map. It's our map for this life, how we're going, where we're going. The Holy Spirit is the light, the light that shines on it and illuminates it so that we can see it and then move forward in that direction. And the church is the vehicle. You gotta get in, you gotta get involved, and then you gotta go. That's how God works. They all three work together. And when you're using them in unison, the way God intended, you'll be molded into his image and you will see his burden. That is how you look up. You start by looking into God's word. And listen, that's just that's not just hyperbole. Because Psalm 119, verse 89 says, Forever, O Lord, thy word is settled in heaven. And that word settled means stationed, because he is the word. And we don't have time to explain all that, but know that when you are looking into God's word, you are looking into heaven. So you spend time in God's word and you let it dwell in you and consume you so that you walk in the spirit, displaying in your life the fruit of the spirit found in Galatians 5 verses 22 and 23 that we talked about earlier. That love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. And then you come in here and you get involved with us 
and live out what you're learning in ministry here. Listen, it isn't rocket science, but you do have to do it. Seeing and getting God's burden will not happen automatically. You get it and you see it as you spend time with him and as you apply what he's teaching you. So you've got to start there. Because without that, these next two points, they really don't matter. If you don't start in God's word, you don't start by walking in the spirit and through the context of God's vehicle, chosen vehicle of the day, well, these other things aren't going to work. But once you start here, then you can move on to the next one. Because listen, the devil's going to keep battling. He's, he's going to keep fighting. Even if you're walking in the Spirit, he's not giving up. He's going to keep fighting. So you have to fight back. And so the next step to seeing God's burden is to look out. And this just gets to looking beyond yourself. You have to, at some point in your life, look beyond yourself. So many times we just have ingrown eyeballs. And all we can see is us. But in order to see God's burden, you've got to be able to see beyond yourself and see the need of others. Even in other parts of the world. Because listen, from, from where Nehemiah was located in you know, 444 B.C., Jerusalem was another part of the world. It was that far, it's like 900 miles. That might as well have been, you know, Africa. So you got to be able to see beyond yourself and see the need of others wherever God wants to take you. Look back at verse 1. Again, Nehemiah, chapter 1. The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah. And it came to pass in the month of Chizu in the 20th year, as I was in Shushan the palace, that Hanani, one of my brethren, came he and certain men of Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews that had escaped, which were left of the captivity, and concerning Jerusalem. They said unto me, the remnant that are left of the captivity there in the province are in great affliction and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem is also broken down. The gates thereof are burned with fire. Okay, here's what you need to see in this point. Nehemiah had a, had a very comfortable life as the cupbearer to the king of Persia, which, which at the time was kind of the king of the world. And we know he was a king's cupbearer because he says that in verse 11 of the same chapter at the very end. He says all this, he talks down, do we have verse 11? For I was the king's cupbearer. All right, so, so we know. And a cupbearer in that day was a position of prestige and influence. He was one of the original influencers. And as a cupbearer, he had some political standing, he had some royal power, he had intimate access to the king and, and his family. He was kind of like the king's personal assistant. Now, he did have to drink the wine before it was given to the king in case it was poisoned. So not everything about the job was perfect. <laughs> but this wasn't just a job given to anybody, especially when that anybody was a Jew. And this speaks to Nehemiah's character and his ability, much like Daniel. Because in Daniel chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, and this is back with Nebuchadnezzar under Babylon, and the king spake unto Ashpenaz, the master of his eunuchs, that he should bring certain of the children of Israel and of the king's seed and of the princes, children in whom was no blemish, but well-favored and skillful in all wisdom and cunning and knowledge and understanding the science, and such as had ability in them to stand in the king's palace, in whom they might teach the learning and the tongue of the Chaldeans. And those same characteristics would have been described of, of Nehemiah as well. 
or, or the king of Persia wouldn't allow him in to his palace. So by all appearances, everything was good for Nehemiah on a professional and a personal level. He lived in the palace. He had an insider's view of the most powerful empire on the planet. Yet that didn't define him. Because he was able to look out and look beyond himself. And his opportunity for greatness did not emerge out of his ease, nor rise out of his affluence. His chance to build for the future showed up in a difficult place with a burden. And you may not link opportunity and burden, but God does. Because opportunities and building and being the right man or the right woman, those things are not about comfort. They're about mission. And this is so interesting because Nehemiah's name means comfort of the Lord. And he was living in a place of comfort in the palace. In a city of comfort, Shushan. Because that is where the king went during the winter months because of its mild climate. And yet when he looked out and looked beyond himself and heard about Jerusalem and and the Jews there, and knew God's burden for that city and God's love for that city, it made him uncomfortable. Nehemiah knew this was not how God's people were meant to live. In a broken down city, with torn down walls, and burned down gates, in a wrecked environment. And listen, if you are living in a wrecked environment today, you need to be like Nehemiah and say to yourself, this is not how God wants me to live. This is not how God wants me to feel. This is not how I'm supposed to be reacting. And what you need to do is get help from God's word and God's people. Because God will do the work in your life to get you where he wants you to be, but you have to be a willing participant. That part's up to you. And Nehemiah knew the Israelites were people of promise. They were promised the the land that flowed with milk and honey. But now everything was in chaos. And that hurt Nehemiah to hear it. But, But listen to what I'm about to say. Sometimes you will never see where you need to be until you get uncomfortable where you are. And I don't know if you heard that or not, but that was worth hearing. So that's why I put it on your outline sheet. And it's so easy to become complacent about our spirituality and about our ministry to others. So easy to become complacent even with our worldly life, no matter how good or bad it might be. It seems like either road, it just leads to us accepting that that's all there is. And we fall into this groove of living life for us because it's comfortable. No, if you want to be a Nehemiah, if you want to be a builder where God has you in the roles that he has placed you, then allow yourself to look out beyond yourself and get a little uncomfortable with what you see. Listen, here's what I want you to know. God wants something better for us than what we have right now. And I'm not even saying things are bad now. Now, for some of you, things might be bad. But for many of you, they aren't. For many of you, things are great. The health of this church is great. 
But that's exactly the point. When things are good, we're at risk for getting complacent. And we can't allow that to happen. We've got to build for the future. So when it comes to this battle, we need to continue to push. We need to be rising and not falling. We need to be succeeding and not failing, helping and not hurting. We need to be lifting and not holding back. We need to search the scriptures and find a picture of God's, of God's future for us. You need to find a picture of God's future for you and for others around you, those that you're fighting for. But you're going to have to lose the selfishness and look beyond yourself to find it. And listen, if you think that you're the center of the universe, and I know you would never admit to that, and yet you just might still be living like that. So if you think you're the center of the universe, or if you're living like you're the center of the universe, and you can't look beyond yourself, and see the need of others, even the need of others in your own home, and be compelled by it, I just want to remind you of a couple of verses. Because Psalm 24, verse 1 says, The earth is the Lord's, and the fullness thereof, the world, and they that dwell therein. Colossians 1, verses 16 through 18 says, For by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things, all things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and by him all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. Not you, not me. So if that's you, let me ask you, like God asked Job in Job 38, verses 4 through 7, Where was thou when I laid the foundations of the earth? Declare if thou hast understanding. Who hath laid the measures thereof, if thou knowest? Who hath stretched the line upon it? Whereupon are the foundations thereof fastened? Or who laid the cornerstone thereof? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of glory shouted for joy. God's saying, where were you? Because I was there. You see, this world and this life and the world to come and the life to come, it's about him, not us. So let's look out. Let's look beyond ourselves and see what it is that he has us to do for his glory. And when you find it, you got to take the last step. Because this is where you're moved to action. And that's to look in. But again, this is like, listen, if you get this order wrong and you look in first, you're just going to see selfishness. No, you've you got you to gotta look up first because you've got to get the right mind. And then you can look out. With the right mind, you can look out and see the need. And then you've got to look in. You've got to look in, in, into your life. And you have to personalize the need. And look within yourself to see what it is that God will have you do about it. And that's what Nehemiah did in verse 4 and, and through the end of the chapter that we'll see next week. But for now, look with me at verse 4. And it came to pass when I heard these words, when he heard that report about the bad shape Jerusalem was in. When I heard these words that I sat down and wept and mourned certain days and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. See, Nehemiah didn't just see the need of God's people. 
and even maybe feel bad about it, and, but move on. He felt it. He sat down and wept and mourned and fasted and prayed. It's quite a list. When was the last time something drove you to do those five things? Remember, Nehemiah was in a place of luxury. He didn't have to make this his problem. He didn't, this didn't have to become his burden, except that he wanted his burden to be God's burden. And he was the right man in the right place at the right time. And since he was able to look beyond himself, he could then look within himself to seek the Lord for what he was supposed to do. And that's the key here. Nehemiah was burdened to the point of action, but his first action was to seek the Lord. Now, it led to more, and he obviously does more. We'll see that throughout this series. But this is where it started, and that's an important point because sometimes in our, in our exuberance and, and naivete and, and lack of understanding, we'll see a need and we'll just run at it. That's not the, that's not the pattern. You got to seek the Lord first. And, and we talk about this in missions a lot. A, a need doesn't necessarily constitute a call. And those are, those are different things to understand. There's needs everywhere. God has something for you. So, so you got you to be able to understand, and you understand by seeking the Lord. This reminds me of Ezekiel. He's a prophet during the time of captivity. And look at what he says in Ezekiel chapter 3, verses 15 through 17. And then I came to them of the captivity of Tel Abib and dwelt by the river of Chabar, and I sat where they sat and remained there astonished among them seven days. Just think about that phrase. I sat where they sat. And it came to pass at the end of seven days that the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Son of man, I have made thee a watchman unto the house of Israel. Therefore hear the word at my mouth and give them warning for me. And these are some really powerful verses. But look at how Ezekiel was able to look within. He sat where they sat. He put himself in their position. And listen, sometimes that's what the Lord wants us to do with the people we're ministering to. You know the saying about walking a mile in someone else's shoe. Well, that kind of makes a similar point. I just like Bible phrases better. And Ezekiel sat where they sat. And he just stayed there seven days. He was waiting to hear from the Lord. And once he got word from the Lord, he obeyed. But this aspect of personalizing the need and and sitting where others have sat or sitting where others sit, it's a Christ-like endeavor. Because that is who he is and that is exactly what he did. Speaking of Christ, look at what Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, verses 7 and 8. Christ made himself of no reputation, took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wayne mentioned this verse in, in, our, in our introduction before the worship this morning. Listen, Jesus Christ literally left heaven to sit where we sit. He saw our need and became one of us so that he could solve it. Hebrews 4.15, For we have not an high priest, which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. 
And listen, he wasn't only wasn't only not you know, touched with the feelings of our infirmities, he, he was wounded and bruised for them. Isaiah 53, verses 4 and 5, Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. The Bible says that he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. And they were not forced upon him. And Jesus explained that in a parable in John chapter 10. He let everyone know from the beginning how far his willingness went. John chapter 10 verse 11 says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd giveth his life for his sheep. And down in verse 15, as the father knoweth me, even so know I the father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. And other sheep I have, which are not of this fold, them also I must bring. And they shall hear my voice, and there's some good prophetic stuff in there too. But, and they shall hear my voice, and there shall be one fold and one shepherd. Therefore doth my Father love me, because I lay down my life, that I might take it again. See, he willingly suffered. He willingly laid down his life. The devil didn't take it from him. He laid it down. He didn't have to know grief. He could have said enough is enough. He could have returned to the royalties of heaven, much like Nehemiah didn't have to leave the royalties of the palace. Or even tarrying here, he could have lived indifferently to the woes of mankind. But he would not and did not. He remained to the end out of his, out of his love to us, grief's acquaintance. And I, and I hope you caught what I just said, because his willingness to suffer was due to the depths of his love, his love for the world, his love for me, and his love for you. And when we talk about building for the future, looking at our homes and our kids and our grandkids and our friends and our schoolmates, let me ask you, how much do you love them? How far are you willing to go for them? Are you willing to sit where they sit considering their end, even if that means suffering? Now, if truth be told, few of us can really suffer well, and few of us can bear pain. Perhaps fewer even can, still, can bear misrepresentation and slander and ingratitude. And yet Christ, throughout his life, bore those and other sufferings because of his love. So we ought to think of his love when we look within and consider others before us. So will you try this morning? To get your soul saturated with the love of Christ, who willingly suffered for you, who willingly sat where you sit. That will enable you to be the right man or the right woman for all the places that, that God has, has put you. And listen, I ask that question knowing that for some reason, even you know, when we put it in this compelling way, I know it's still difficult for us. You know, sometimes folks wonder why the church grows so slowly. Let me be honest with you. When I think about the shallow consecration to Christ there is in the church, I don't wonder that much. Jesus was a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. But many of his disciples who profess to be altogether his are in truth only living for themselves. Because while Christ was willing to suffer all for us, we're not even willing to suffer little for him or for anyone else that we say we love. And I think it's because we don't fully understand the love that came from Christ. 
That's what Paul told us in 2 Corinthians 5, verses 14 and 15. But listen, when you look out at this community and your home, and you look at your kids and your grandkids and your friends, doesn't that make you want to be a more godly father or mother or grandparent or friend or schoolmate? If it doesn't, then you haven't got these steps figured out yet. And you're not quite seeing God's burden as your burden. But that doesn't mean you can't change. You just have to apply what God is teaching you today. And listen, you get the opportunity every Sunday to examine your life and to examine what you actually, how you should be responding to him every week. You should come in to these services prayed up, asking God to speak to you. And when he does, use this time. We're going to sing a song here in a second to close out our service. Use that time as a time that God's inviting you. You know, We call it a time of invitation. God is inviting you to respond to him. And get right what you need to get right with him. Listen, he already knows. He knows all that's wrong with you. So you might as well be honest. Why fight it? This morning you need to ask yourself if you're seeing God's burden for the people in your life. That should be your examination. Or maybe you're out there and you don't know the Lord as your Savior. You've never accepted his sacrifice for you. And if you're not saved, that should be your examination. Because the Bible says if you're not saved, then you're on your way to hell, eternally separated from God. And all getting saved means is that you recognize you are a sinner and you believe in faith that Jesus Christ came to this earth, lived a perfect life, died for your sin as that perfect sacrifice accepted by his Father, and that he rose again on the third day according to the Scriptures. And you exchange your sinful life for his perfect life by just trusting in him, by placing your faith in his work. And you can't do it by any work of your own. You only do it by placing your faith, your belief in him and what he did, that he died for you on the cross. That's Romans 10, verses 9 and 10. And you can accept Christ as your Savior and be saved right now, this morning, by praying to him and letting him know that you're a sinner and asking him to come into your heart and into your life and save you. And he'll do it just like that. If you have any questions about that, please come forward during the final song. We would love to talk to you. And help see you get saved today. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, you are so good. Uh, you, you have a burden. You have a burden for this life. You have a burden in this world. And you, you have a burden for us. Each individually, we certainly know where the places that you've, you've placed us in our home and in our families. And, and we need to have your burden for them, uh, for those around us.